0: National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns, is brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check out their website at cybersecuritysummit.org for a list of their upcoming webinar series. And now, your host, John Olson.
1: Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, and you've joined us for this edition of National Security This Week. We get together every Wednesday at 9 a.m. to discuss national security And we're fortunate enough to be joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us learn more about national security challenges and opportunities. We have a truly fantastic show for you today. Listeners to this show have heard me talk about the struggle between the liberal democracies of the world and the rising autocracies. That struggle was sort of below the tabletop for the past decade, but after Russia invaded Ukraine, it has taken center stage. The winner of that struggle will write the rules for the new global order. But there's a second struggle taking place, one that's not so obviously visible in the liberal democracies around the world. A struggle we sense is happening in democratic nations around the world, but it's been difficult to define. We'll define that challenge today and learn how it's undermining liberal democracies around the world. Our guest today is Dr. Moises Naim. Moises Naim is a distinguished fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He's also an internationally syndicated columnist and the host and producer of Efecto Naim, a weekly television program on international affairs that, throughout, that, that airs throughout the Americas and won an Emmy in 2018. In the early 1990s, Moises Naim served as Venezuela's Minister of Development, director of its central bank, and as an executive director at the World Bank. From 1996 to 2010, he was editor-in-chief of Foreign Policy magazine. Naeem is also the author of many scholarly articles and over 15 books on international affairs, economics, and politics, including the book Illicit and the book The End of Power, which were selected by the Washington Post and the Financial Times as best books of the year. He recently published his best-selling sequel to The the End of Power. The, The new book is The Revenge of Power which The New Yorker highlighted as one of the best books of 2022. Dr. Moises Naeem has a Ph.D. from MIT and lives in Washington, D.C. with his family. Dr. Moises Naeem, welcome to National Security This Week.
2: Hi, John. Thank you very much for inviting me.
1: You and I were just talking before we got on the air. You mentioned something else about uh, the revenge of power uh, being named best book. Who who was it that uh, named it the best book of 2022?
2: The New Yorker magazine. Oh,
1: so it was the New Yorker, okay. Yeah. So well, you and I are on Zoom. I'm sitting in the beautiful studios here of KYMN Radio in, in downtown Northfield, Minnesota. Uh, where are you this morning?
2: I am in my office in Washington, D.C. All right.
1: At, at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace? Yeah. Uh, can you uh, tell us a little bit about your current work at, at the Carnegie the Endowment for International Peace? What are what you researching at, at Carnegie? What do they do at Carnegie?
2: Well, there is a, Carnegie does a lot of things. Uh, Almost all the major challenges facing um, humanity are, you you have a group of uh, people that are very well uh, informed and uh, rigorous thinkers uh, trying to sort out uh, the major dilemmas of our time. And, uh, you know, Carnegie has one of the world's strongest programs on democracy, on, uh, on nuclear policy, what to do with nukes and how. Uh, sustainability and climate and geopolitics, uh, the intersection of these three things. Um, the global order, uh, how to organize ourselves in this 21st century full of challenges and unexpected uh, uh, unexpected reality. And I work at the, on the intersection of politics and economics at the, at the global level.
1: And he also served as uh, editor-in-chief of uh, Foreign Policy magazine for, what was it, 15 years? Uh, which means you reviewed and published thoughtful, well-researched, in-depth articles penned by scholars and political leaders from around the world. Foreign policy tackles some of the hardest challenges humanity faces with each issue. And uh, frankly, from my perspective, it's a fantastic magazine. I've been a subscriber for many, many years. Uh, How did that experience as editor-in-chief help you to frame your thinking about the challenges to the liberal democratic order around the world today?
2: It's probably the mo- one of the most important experiences I have had in my life. Uh, as you mentioned, I do have a PhD from MIT, but uh, that's nothing compared to what I learned editing foreign policy, which as you said, every day I would get uh, pitches and proposals and suggestions uh, from uh, uh, writers and scholars and uh, media leaders. And so I got an, an education and um, and as a result of that, I, I am obsessed with trying to understand uh, what's going on. What are the surprises? The, the surprises of globalization has always been a theme of mine. Uh, what is this new trend, the new reality that connects countries, even if they are oceans apart? Uh, and then they they face the, you know the, the, the notion, the old idea is that we are all the neighbors here. Uh, what, and what happens there matters here and uh, vice versa. So we are connected and that is creating all kinds of challenges for institutions that were not designed for that kind of global integration and, uh, and creates new, as I said, surprises. The surprises of globalization is a theme that is quite important.
1: And during your time as Editor-in-Chief at Foreign Policy from 96 to 2010, uh, what, what kind of trends did you see uh, kind of in the international order uh, from what you can remember i mean i know that's a long period of time and it was 12 years ago that you left the editor in chief position but uh, a lot of the things so that we're dealing with today those trends started back in that time frame
2: so as i said as i said my my vision for the magazine was to educate myself and educate the, uh, the readers uh, about what are the new things that are happening that are have no precedent and are related to globalization. And um, as a result of that, of going around, I traveled quite a bit, I travel all the time, and I, wherever I went, I was with uh, my eyes open to the surprises of globalization. And I discovered that um, the group, everybody was going global. Mm. Uh, governments and churches and uh, uh, companies and, and non-governmental organizations and uh, hobbyists and terrorists. and, But the group that really was taking advantage was the fast uh, first mover uh, were international criminal cartels. Mm. Cartels, criminal cartels that were local or perhaps even ro- regional, but now went global. And so you find uh, Tanzanian uh, traffickers operated in Thailand and you find... Uh, New York uh, uh, financial operations linked with Colombia, and, uh, and, and and so on. The, uh, the world was becoming an oyster for these criminal cartels. As a result of that, I decided to write a book uh, titled Illicit, uh, in which I looked at uh, five of the main areas in which this was happening. As a result of that, I renewed my interest in government and other Uh, in studying what government is. And I was surprised by how weak uh, governments were, how constrained. And uh, then from that uh, came the end of power that essentially uh, argues that in these days, power has become easier to acquire, harder to use and easier to lose. Mm. And then a decade after that book comes this one, The Revenge of Power which is a study of what are people in power doing to make sure that the forces that fragment, dilute, and weaken power don't dislodge them from power.
1: Mm, Yeah. Uh, For our audience, you're listening to National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Dr. Moises Naim, and we're discussing global challenges to democracy. We're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. Learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. Uh, Dr. Naim, uh, you, we just mentioned it. Your recent book is titled The Revenge of Power. Uh, I, I read the book as I was uh, preparing for today's uh, show. Uh, it is a stunning read. Uh, frankly, it's quite terrifying and, and, and extremely insightful. You've captured in this book uh, the mechanisms for how democracies are being undermined around the world, uh, giving rise to a new form of authoritarian leader uh, I have many many things to ask you today uh about the book and uh and your research, but let's start with this uh this first question uh, what specifically was the catalyst that led you to research this book uh, and, and to write the revenge of power
2: The ascent of stealthy tyrants oh. uh, the, the I discovered how the, the, now it has become has become uh, almost necessary for a politician. Uh, to present himself or herself uh, as a a Democrat. But in fact, once in government, they continue to pretend that they are Democrats, but in fact, uh, their actions and their behaviors and their policies and their politics are designed to undermine the checks and balances of a democracy uh, and uh, ensure, uh, do away with term limits and ensure that they stay in power regardless uh, of uh, what are the rules and the constitution and all that. And so I decided that uh, I needed to look uh, deeply into the forces uh, that are concentrating power, and and shape them, and uh, in, in see how they interact with the forces that dilute power that I studied in the end, in the other book called, titled The End of Power. So it's not that it's it's not an either-or. It's not that power is completely diluting uh, or power is completely concentrating. Both things are happening at the same time and intertwining interdependence. And interrelations of the three of, of these two forces are, uh, I think, the defining trends of our uh, uh, life these days.
1: And and we have a lot that I'd like to to cover. But uh, the central theme of, the, of your book is that there's essentially a a renaissance in the rise of autocracy around the world, and that the global liberal democratic order is being undermined by these democratic leaders who are using a new playbook of methods. Uh, to achieve their goals, to attain power and then hang on to power. Uh, you refer to the challenge of the three P's uh, in our of our modern world, and those are populism, polarization, and these post-truth narratives. Uh, and so I have two questions for you. This is probably going to get a little complex. Uh, this might take a little bit of time to get through this, but I think it's really important for our listeners. Uh, first, I'd like to ask you if you could define the term liberal democracies. Uh, a lot of people hear that, and they, they, they don't maybe necessarily understand exactly what we mean by that when we talk about it in the foreign policy arena. And then could you please explain the the, the challenge that liberal democracies face from these three forces, the three Ps, populism, polarization, and these post, post-truth narratives? Uh, give us a way to to think about these three terms and how they're at work in liberal democracies around the world today.
2: Liberal democracies are about freedom. Uh, Liberal democracies are a system of government and of politics that ensures that no one concentrates power absolutely, that power is divided, and there are three forces of three kinds of powers, legislative, you know, the Congress, the executive, which is the presidency, and the judicial, uh, the Supreme Court and all the the, 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 the judicial system. All three coexist, all three are designed to check the power of the other, and together, uh, working in, in, in synchronicity, they are uh, in a synchronous way, they, they, they define what a democracy is, where no one, no, no group, no individual, no political party concentrates power. And, um, and, and what I, the, the three Ps are the three strategies that uh, would be uh, uh, leaders or actual leaders um, are using to uh, undermine democracy from, very often from within. These are governments uh, and politicians that win an election, but as soon as they are in power, they start undermining the checks and balances and the division of powers and the checks and balances that limit uh, the, and constrain what they can do. And they use for that the three Ps, populism, polarization, and post-truth. Populism is very old. It's not, a tech, it's not an ideology because we find practitioners of populism in the right and the left, and the north and the south. Everywhere populism is, has become quite popular and quite common. And it's founded, it's, it's centered, anchored in, the, in an idea that is divide and conquer. Um, So populists divide the nation between uh, a noble people that is exploited by a horrible elite that exploits it. And then it requires the presence of a strong, often man, a strong man or a strong woman that represents the interests of the noble people that are exploited. Uh, That, of course, is just uh, propaganda and, in fact, is just a trick to divide the country and have enough uh, votes to, to, to rule in a way that, as I said before, uh, often undermines democracy itself. Now, um, populism has, has a long history, and uh, so is polarization. But now, polarization has been amplified by post-truth, by social media and all the new technologies of information uh that we we see how they're uh, shaping politics and business and social mores and uh, everything so the three together um they have always existed the post truth uh, used to be called propaganda uh and it's, it was a mostly uh, uh undertaken by governments but now everybody can uh, you know be a populist uh, uh, from his his or her house or office um so the essence of the story is that we have three longstanding old trends that have modern ways and modern manifestations, uh, and they are defining the, the the use and misuse of power nowadays.
1: If I could, let me see if I can sort of uh, summarize some of the, some of what you just said. So, uh, liberal democracies uh, for for listeners here in the upper Midwest or people who are going to listen to the uh, uh, to the podcast later. Uh, that's really essentially governments like what the United States has had. It's the governments, the governments around the world that became our allies after World War II. Uh, there are checks and balances in the governmental system, how we, uh, how we run our countries from a political perspective, uh, to make sure that you don't have a concentration of power. So America is a liberal democracy. The United Kingdom is a liberal democracy. Germany, France, etc., are liberal democracies. Is that is that a good summarization, uh, Doctor Nyme? Excellent.
2: Okay. Excellent,
1: Yes. And then on the populism side, uh, populist movements uh, sort of frame their issues around uh, the noble people, the, in other words, the working class, say Americans, uh, being uh, sort of taken advantage of by these political elites or uh, scientists or uh, whoever whoever is the that, that you've identified as the people who are uh, taking away your opportunities in life. Is that is a good also a good way to frame it?
2: Yes, sir. Yes, sir.
1: The polarization piece. Maybe you could talk a little bit more about the polarization that's happening in in uh, uh, in in countries around the world. Frankly, the polarization that's dividing us as a people in in say the United Kingdom or France or America or uh, you know take your pick of the, amongst the liberal democracies. What what is polarization specifically?
2: is using deeply held emotions, and manipulated deeply held emotions and uh, that in turn have been shaped by the realities of people. And, um, and essentially deny others that don't think like them to have the right of government, to have the right of politics. Uh, in the United States, we have seen the sad, uh, dangerous uh, uh, race of uh, the white supremacists. Uh, they don't recognize others as legitimate, uh, you know, players. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they touch uh, deeply held, uh, you know, manifestations of this. Very often they lie openly. Uh, But that's a good example uh, where you uh, are essentially looking for wedge issues in society and drill uh, on them and and make them even more um, divided, more profoundly divided. And so again divide divide and conquer and so and what is very scary is that polarization has gone global
1: mm-hmm.
2: uh, and you find the same manifestations of a divided country that it makes it very hard to govern right if you have a country that is so deeply divided and different actors different groups political parties ideologies as you know do not do not recognize others as legitimate uh, players. Uh, Very hard to govern. And that is happening around the world, and that is why we're looking at uh, increasingly, with increasingly uh, frequency, we we see elections uh, that do not solve the problem, but just quantify with precision how divided a society is. No one gets big landslide votes that then get a mandate to do this or that. It's just precarious uh, uh, thin razor thin advantages that take people to power and then they are constrained by a lot of uh, factors and but at the same time they can they they end up doing things stealthily and undermining democracy by uh, weakening the, the checks and balances
1: so we have leaders all around the world who have been democratically elected into their uh, into the leadership of their country uh, based on sort of a populist, uh, platform, who have then used polarization to further fracture their, their society in this divide and conquer methodology that you, that you've described, and then the post-truth narratives, which you said is essentially modern forms of propaganda, help reinforce the control that the the rising authoritarian or autocratic leader then has. Is that is that a so good summarization?
2: Absolutely, and it's both that and at the same time um, providing new tools to uh, shape politics uh, in, in in a country uh, using narratives and stories. Uh, very very often, uh, not uh, falsehoods, but is what people want and uh, want to listen, and is the kind of political preferences uh, that very that increasingly uh, are not uh, sustained in, in fact.
1: Can I can I ask you? So typically, I think in the liberal democracies on the, around the world, we've had a check on governmental power through what's referred to as the fourth estate or the free media, the free press, professional journalists who have done a fine job of, of holding to account political leaders who uh, would would have gotten away with these things or would have tried these things in the past but couldn't get away from them. Can you, can you talk a little bit about the sort of maybe the lack of success that traditional— uh, journalism has had in, in holding these populist uh, leaders uh, to account or holding you know, checks and balances in the system through the free press? Is that, is that an issue that you see as happening on a global scale?
2: And it's critically important. Uh, the answer is yes, of course. It's critically important, uh, still misunderstood, and parts that we understand we don't have the policies to deal with them. Um, as I mentioned uh, 10 years ago, I wrote a book called The End of Power, The end of power did not relate only to governments, but I saw it and I documented how it was happening in the private sector, in the military, uh, in non-governmental organizations, in churches, in sports clubs, and of course, the media. Uh, And as you well described, John, uh, now, uh, traditional journalism, traditional media, the way it was uh, performed in the past is no longer there. Now we have a proliferation of channels, vehicles, instruments, uh, technologies that allow even an individual to have uh, 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 adopt roles that in the past uh, were concentrated in, 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 in traditional uh, outlets, magazines, and newspapers, and the newscasts, and all of that. Um, this has a good good part to it, in which, you know, it's more democratic, it's more, uh, you know, everybody has access and can share with the world uh, his or her opinions, but it's also very confusing. It is being uh, used very often to manipulate, distort, and eventually harm uh, uh, some of the people that believe in these uh, ideas. Um, And so uh, you asked me what was my current line of work, uh, and I mentioned the intersection of politics And uh, economics, but I am also very interested in understanding uh, the behavior of people that believe in the most uh, easy to confirm and verify as uh, lies. Mm. And and so, how gullible we all have become! Uh, uh, And just you know, it would just take a couple of more clicks when we get a message that is deeply polarizing, hey, disseminating hate and. It would just take a couple of clicks in your computer to find out, uh, you know, what are the foundations of that lie, and yet people are attached to these ideas that have a very deep emotional connection to their realities, to their, uh, their lives. That they believe that um, they believe in these things, and uh, I am very interested in understanding uh, the behavior of uh, of, you know, of these people.
1: So, your your book, "The Revenge of Power." Uh, you, you study these, these issues on a global scale, and one of the things that you highlight in the book is that uh, oftentimes the people who are uh, willing to follow these, these, uh, these democratic leaders who uh, run on sort of a populist approach is that they've often been left behind uh, in the modernized global economy. Uh, is that a fair, fair assessment?
2: Yes, but it depends. It's, it's a broad uh, um, perspective, which is correct. Uh, there is a, a sense inequality has become a very important issue. Inequality has always existed. It uh, reached. Um, it became even more intense in the last decade or so. The global financial crisis that uh, we all lived in two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine, ten created, deepened on inequality and the feelings of injustice and how the burdens were not being carried equally by everybody. But the wealthy were, were essentially inoculated from the travails of uh, global politics and economics. Uh, and uh, yes, that's, um, that's a story that is going to be with us for a while. People that have these grievances are correct very often Um, And the governments have failed to provide the kinds of answers, policies, and institutions to help them uh, and support them and ensure that the working class, the middle class, is not hurt uh, inordinately by the uh, frequent financial shocks that the global economy and the local economies are suffering.
1: And that actually uh, was was echoed by, uh, I'm sure you know, Dr. Fiona Hill. Uh, her book, uh, There's Nothing For You Here, talked about those as case studies in the U.K., uh, the mining towns, the coal mining towns in the U.K., and then areas uh, here across the United States where people were sort of left behind economically as the the, eco- the economy fundamentally changed around them. Uh, and, you know, their, their resentment, essentially the politics of resentment, which you talk about in your book as well, uh, are part of what these leaders tap into in their rise to power. There's a... Some of what you discuss is that there are certain traits that people have where they are somewhat receptive to uh, the message from an authoritarian-type leader, uh, and that this modern uh, look that we have uh, with leaders who tap into the three Ps—populism, uh, polarization, and post-truth— is that they, they've become almost like rock star uh, political leaders rather than servants of the people. Could you, could you comment on those, those items?
2: Yeah, that's a fascinating uh, subject because it has to do with the adoption of techniques that are, uh, were became very important, and were always part of the arts. And which and we have a word for that fandom. We are fans of sports clubs or artists, or uh, you know, fandom is it beca- is is an attachment that goes beyond being a follower. It goes beyond liking uh, the, the soccer you know, player or the baseball player or, or the artist. It goes, it goes to the identity. The person intertwines uh, his, his or her identity and includes the fact that they are connected to this uh, superstar. Well, the politicians adopted that. Charisma, uh, which is the ability to attract others and get supporters, has always been there in politics. Uh, Adolf Hitler was a monster, but was very charismatic, and he managed to manipulate and to uh the German people in amazing ways. Uh and, and so, you know, fandom uh just not it goes beyond uh beyond what we had seen in the past and is the intense use using the technologies of post-truth and social media and everything else that we know. It's uh, it's creating these, uh, these these kinds of uh, relationship in which followers uh, are beyond followers. Uh, they, they are their own. Who they are is also defined by who they follow and support. And,
1: and that's another point that you bring out, uh, Dr. Naeem, We're we're going to take a very short break uh, for just a, about a minute as we identify our sponsor, uh, the Cybersecurity Summit. We'll be right back.
0: National Security This Week is sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. The Cybersecurity Summit brings together cyber experts from industry, academia, and all levels of government to explore challenges, solutions, and opportunities in the cyber arena. The three-day summit includes speakers, workshops, discussions about advancing a cyber career, and keynote addresses by top leaders from across the cyber community. Learn more at org.
1: And we're back with uh, Dr. Moises Naim. Uh, Dr. Naim, I suspect it would aid people's understanding of how these political forces are at play by discussing a few case studies. Uh, In your book, you go into great depth uh, in The Revenge of Power, talking about some of these really interesting movements that uh, vaulted some of these charismatic leaders to power, through democratic processes, and then they consolidated that power uh, to sort of establish themselves as autocrats. Uh, Hugo Chavez comes to mind, uh, Victor Orban, there are others. Uh, Could you choose three or four examples from your book that you think most effectively outline how these three Ps uh, that autocrats use to secure their hold on political leadership?
2: Sure. And, um, uh, and I will pick oh, three very different uh, individuals in different countries that uh, somehow managed to have very similar politics and policies. One is Silvio Berlusconi in Italy, mm. who was prime minister in, in the 90s and stayed and is now still part of his party's part of the coalition that is ruling Italy. Um, that, he's one. The other uh, is Donald Trump. And the third is Hugo Chavez. Uh, who was elected as a a military guy that was uh, attempted a coup, failed, went to jail, was pardoned and then ran and won an election. Uh, What do they have in common? The three of them, Hugo Chavez, uh, uh, Donald Trump and Berlusconi. Well, the demonization of the past, uh, the notion that uh, nothing in the past is worth uh, uh, protecting or using. Everything is nefarious uh, and, and negative and, and, and bad. Um, it's what we call the anti-politics. Uh, and it, uh, you know, throw them all out. Uh, bring me new faces, new people, new, new, new leaders that have had nothing to do with power or with government or with business and uh, are responsible for this dire situation in which we are. Remember Donald Trump talking about the carnage. Uh, in America. So the three, even though the three of them are extremely different, you cannot imagine what <laughs> different individuals in their background, in their outlook, in their behaviors and so on. But they, they, then you read what they say and it's almost impossible to differentiate one from the other. They all say, that the three of them say the same thing, even though their nations, their politics, their economics, their international relations, uh, their society, their values are very, very, very different and yet they end up behaving exactly in the same way.
1: And all three of them reject uh, what we would refer to as uh, quote-unquote experts. People have actually studied these different issues in public policy uh, for decades in some cases and really know what of what they speak, but these political leaders have rejected experts in favor of they know best, they know what the people need or want. Is that is that a fair assessment?
2: Yeah, it is, and it's, yeah, it's absolutely, uh, you know, these kinds of, of of autocrats don't like data, don't like evidence, <laughs> don't like uh, journalists that probe too much, don't like scientists, don't like experts. There is a famous story about Michael Rove, which, who was a minister in England, in the United Kingdom, when they they were debating Brexit, which was divorcing uh, from Europe. You know, The United Kingdom was going to sever, it was not going to be a, a longer part of the project of uniting Europe and uh, his party and the, the, the Michael Rhodes party was there promoting that and actually they won an election largely based on, on offering that and there was a study made by some of the most respected analysts about what would the consequences be of this brexit of exiting britain exiting uh links with europe and and the, and it was catastrophic it was bad uh, and And so he was, Michael Rove, was asked about this and said, you know, the the British people are tired of experts. We don't need experts anymore. (laughs) Uh, And, you know, uh, and now, sadly, and uh, uh, I have, you know, one has to lament the fact that, yes, they won the election. They imposed Brexit. And a lot of the costs and calamities that was uh, predicted in the study, the expert that he disdained, are taking place, are happening.
1: So you 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 highlighted uh Silvio Berlusconi, uh Hugo Chavez and and uh, and Donald Trump. Uh are there other countries that you can look at or that you looked at in your book, your research where the rise of these individuals uh was was somewhat similar? Uh, yeah,
2: absolutely. Uh, uh you know, in the Rodrigo Duterte in the Philippines, you mentioned uh, Victor Orbán in Hungary. And so on. Let, let me share with you an experience that it may be of interest to, to your uh, listeners. Um, I have been uh, discussing the book, The End of Power, now, for uh, the book came out in February, uh, just two days before Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Mm. Uh, the, the book was not written with that in mind, except that Putin is, uh, and what his behavior is, is perfect. He's a 3P president, without yeah. any doubt. <laughs> you know, he is a master user of populism, polarization, and post. And, uh, and so uh, I, and now I discuss the book in, in Indonesia, in Malaysia, in Spain, in, in Israel, in Italy, uh, in uh, Colombia, in, in, throughout Latin America... And inevitably, in our conversation, someone asks, why have you used our country as a model for the rest <laughs> of the world? And I said, well, I did not. And joined the line of those who believe that the book is based on one country. And no, the book highlights how in even extremely different nations, societies, you end up with similar behaviors embodied by the three P's.
1: And could you t- maybe maybe for help our listeners understand, you document really well how Silvio Berlusconi came to power and Hugo Chavez. Now, th- those, those two nations are very familiar to American uh, audience. Uh, could you maybe talk a little bit about how each of them used this process to rise to power and then hold on to power for as long as they did?
2: Well, in the case of uh, uh, Donald Trump, he was not able to win the election and stay in power so you know he 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 is a very good example of uh, uh you know power in the 21st century easier easy to acquire harder to use and uh, easier to lose you know mm-hmm. donald trump is a perfect confirmation of that perspective yeah uh, in the case of uh, berlusconi uh populism you know he was an early adopter and an intense user of populism in a country that has a long history of that uh, you know mussolini was a, also a, a master manipulator of uh, um, of, of public, public opinion and uh, again concentrating power and having reta- you know the story here is one of retaining all of the, uh, the manifestations of democracy but in fact uh, behind that there is not a democracy uh, they for example, take over the courts and put uh, their loyalists uh, that do not act uh, objectively but act in, in, uh, they are at the service of, of the executive of of the presidency, the prime minister um, and uh, the media they they you know they stifle the media no, lo- no longer with brutal uh, uh, censorship and even though there's still a lot of that. But essentially, by buying out the, 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 the networks, buying out the, the newspapers, buying out, and just immediately changing the editorial approach to make it um, subservient to, to the power uh, the center. Uh, so there is a whole, ste- and, and the book presents the whole the, the, the list of the stealthy maneuvers that are not visible to the naked eye of, the, of, of normal people. But they are used to concentrate power and to undermine
1: uh, democracy. Even in your uh, int- introduction in your book, you talk about some of the scholarly work by people like Tim Snyder, Ann Applebaum, and others, where, where they talk about these these patterns that you're you're discussing right now: uh, criminalization of political rivals, uh, using external threats to uh, highlight the threat to you know the, the noble people in the populist movement. Uh, militarization and paramilitarization crumbling national borders denigrating of experts attacking the media undermining checks and balances uh, and then the, the, the you know what we talked about a little while ago uh, the, the fandom factor uh, tapping into the char- charisma of particular leaders uh, all of your case studies all the things you discuss in this book uh, all these leaders around the world have have tapped into all of these things Uh, in their rise to power. Maybe, could you talk a little bit about Viktor Orban's rise to power in Hungary?
2: Well, it was all similar to that of uh, Berlusconi in Italy, except that uh, Orban went one step beyond and he's able to retain power just by, uh, with tricks. Uh, He has elections, but are not real, uh, uh, transparent and uh, uh, elections. Uh, He controls the media, uh, not by censorship, but he essentially suddenly a bunch of uh, uh, quote-unquote investors went and bought uh, radio stations and, and newspapers, local newspapers. So if you live in Hungary today, you have a hard time having access uh, to, to, to information uh, that is not provided by the government. The same, exactly the same, or perhaps even worse. Uh, it, for sure, even worse is happening in Russia. Uh, is happening in Venezuela. Uh, under Maduro, who is... Uh, Nicolás Maduro is the successor, uh, the, the autocrat that succeeded uh, uh, Hugo Chávez in power. Hugo Chávez died of cancer in 2013. Uh, it's quite uh, striking how you go around and, uh, you know, the the, simil- the similarities are uncanny.
1: And can you talk a little bit about... How, and you talk about this really well in the book, uh, how big tech, uh, globally uh i mean big tech it reaches the glo- across the globe today all of these major tech companies have tremendous uh ability to influence politics and economics and perspectives that people have are, are, are these leaders these 3p autocratic leaders are they tapping into the power of uh, uh of these big tech companies like uh <laughs> twitter and Facebook and everything else to expand their their uh their appeal to the to the people to their supporters
2: absolutely absolutely and this is no longer a hypothesis i think we have evidence uh, quite significant evidence in fact we also have evidence of other nations interfering in the politics and elections of another notably the russia putin's russia and the united states uh, 17 intelligence agency of the United States uh, wrote, uh, agreed and, and signed a document, uh, explicitly uh, stating and denouncing that the, uh, the Russian uh, Russian agents uh, and Russia's techn- you know, in, in, players in the social media uh, affected, uh, participated and influenced uh, elections uh, in the United States and around the world. Um, so yes, uh, the, 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 this is something that is with us. The big tech companies uh, are going through their own transitions. What is happening in, in today in Twitter? Um, the, there, there's a huge fight over how to conduct Twitter. Is it, uh, uh, you know, a platform for politics for by anyone under uh, any circumstances, or is something else? There is, you know, I think that the conflicts. Uh, around uh, Twitter and what's happening and what should happen are, are going to be very illustrative of okay, the kind of trends that the world is going to follow. I hope that there are important lessons being learned and applied to guarantee and ensure that post-truth doesn't become an entrenched, irreparable damage uh, to, to our public discourse and
1: politics. And I'd like to ask a couple of follow-up questions on that point. Uh, So the power uh, that the tech companies have to reach uh, audiences on a global scale. Uh, You mentioned about uh, the U.S. intelligence community clearly identifying that Russia tried to influence the 2016 presidential election here in the United States. Uh, But it's not just the U.S. where Russia and other intelligence services from other countries have tried to influence uh, public opinion, uh, sway elections. Uh, The Russians have been doing that in elections across Europe in an effort to sort of divide uh, the European Union or NATO uh, amongst the people in those uh, member countries. Uh, I'm a retired intelligence officer. I know a little bit about how things work. Uh, Influence operations are a form of covert action uh, that are facilitated through these modern-day tech companies. Is that part of post-truth, this propaganda capability? Absolutely.
2: Absolutely. Uh, in the past, as I already mentioned, in the past, propaganda was mostly the tool of governments uh, and organizations. Now, is uh, everybody can uh, engage in uh, his or her own propaganda operation. Uh, and uh, yes, the technology has created wonderful opportunities to promote freedom, but also dangerous opportunities to solve discord, uh, confusion, and chaos.
1: And, and you highlight in, uh, in, in one uh, piece here, uh, 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 a former editor of the British newspaper, The Guardian, uh, Alan Rusbridger, uh, said, A society that cannot agree on a factual basis for discussion or decision-making cannot progress. There can be no laws, no votes, no government, no science, no democracy without a shared understanding of what is true and what is not. Uh, can you comment on that a little bit, uh, the impact that that's having on our societies around the world?
2: My main comment when I hear you say that, which I I, I used uh, citing uh, Alan, um, is that I am still believe you know I've been doing this now for a while, but I'm still bewildered of of of, of that by that statement because it's true, <laughs> uh, and uh, it is so obvious that unless we get our act together in terms of how to use uh, uh, the new technologies and how to, you know, have the politics for the 21st century that includes, they have, you know, they limits the capacity of bad actors to manipulate voters and individuals. We are in dark straits. We, it, it is a priority that people understand that their democracy is important, is valuable, is worth defending. And it takes more than going every four years to vote uh, I'm not suggesting that everyone uh, has to become an activist and devote, uh, you know, half their lives to, to politics. Not at all. But I do believe that uh, just thinking that democracy is perhaps going to vote once every four years is a very dangerous path or, or, or that believing anything that aligns with your sentiments, but is not true and then you start promoting that is also a very complicated thing. As I said, my campaign is please click twice. And <laughs> when you hear something or you read something that it seems outrageous, don't believe it uh, before clicking a couple of times more to understand where is this coming from, how legitimate, objective, uh, credible is the organization that, or the individual that is putting out this, uh, this information.
1: Uh, So for our audience, you're listening to National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Dr. Moises Naim, and we're discussing global challenges to democracy. We're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. You can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. Dr. Naim, we we have about uh, 14 minutes left in our show today. It's amazing to me how quickly the hour goes by uh, every Wednesday morning. Uh, You've outlined for us some very concerning trends regarding uh, the challenge to democracy around the world. Uh, American leadership has traditionally stood against these kinds of challenges throughout the Cold War. That was true. Uh, But our nation is now over $30 trillion in debt. Uh, We have uh, strategic security challenges with the People's Republic of China and certainly with Russia, Iran, North Korea, and and, and many others, uh, places where autocracy has really taken hold. As someone who's studied these challenges to liberal democracies around the world, what, what what should American policymakers do to strengthen our allies and our friends' resilience against these insidious forces of populism, polarization, and post-truth tactics used by autocratic political leaders or parties? How, how do we inoculate ourselves against these forces?
2: By working together, and we are, and that sounds lame and uh, not interesting, <laughs> but it is. Uh, we are living in, in an age where our problems are global in nature. They have always been, but never as now, Uh, as intense, as important, wide ranging. So globalization, the integration of the world's economies, societies, cultures, uh, uh, politics, is happening. And so the more the world integrates, uh, and the more the phrase, you know, uh, what happens there matters here, and vice versa. What, ma- what happens in Wuhan, China, uh, with uh, the pandemic, with COVID, uh, mattered in the world. In a matter of uh, 72 hours, it was already in Europe, and then immediately following a strange trajectory and at very high speed, the, the, the virus was uh, uh, everywhere. Uh, so that's a very good example of globalization and how what, ma- what happens there matters here, vice versa. So that creates what I call the most dangerous deficit in the world, uh, which is not an economic deficit, but an institutional deficit. As the, the world integrates, the problems become global in nature, meaning that no country acting alone can solve them. It requires coalitions. It requires alliances. It requires multilateral operation, which is a horrible world, world. Uh, but it's w- countries working together, which is very hard, very unstable, uh, and very difficult. But if we, if many of the problems, if not the real problems that are ch- that are facing humanity, have that characteristics, uh, they they need countries to work together. The pandemic was an example. Um, climate change is a supreme example of what we need to do together. Um, and the challenges that will come with, uh, with the wide adoption of uh, uh, artificial intelligence. Uh, I can go on with a long list of problems that are true challenges to the survival of humanity that require urgent alliances, urgent effective stable powerful influential alliances meaning and meaning countries working together i'm not suggesting that every important decision has to be approved by the 190 something nations represented the uh, the un the united nations but i'm saying that you know in each problem there are about 20 countries that will uh, that account for more than half of the problem and, and more than half of the solution so let's start talking about minilateralism Instead of 190 something countries, let's work with the 20 that that create the, uh, the are part of the problem and have to be part of the solution. So that's that's the story. It's a story of uh, alliances are always cumbersome, unwieldy, ineffective, boring, bureaucratic, but we need them.
1: So if if I could. Uh because you're a perfect person to comment on this. One of the things I've sort of noted uh, over time is that when you have these, these populist uh, leaders that get elected, a lot of times they turn to sort of nationalist themes uh, to maintain power, to hold power. And a lot of what happens when you have a nationalist government in power is they reject these multilateral approaches. They reject free trade agreements. They reject alliances with other countries. Uh, So it is to the autocrats' benefit uh, to push those kinds of narratives that nationalism is the way to go because it basically winds up isolating the countries that adopt a nationalist approach. Do you see these dangers taking place around the world today where nationalism has taken root in these governments that are controlled by these 3P autocrats?
2: Absolutely. They're everywhere. Uh, They have always been there. Nationalism is a very powerful force which oddly enough in the United States is not recognized as such. The United States is a, pop- is a nationalistic country. Nationalism uh, rise high in the United States and has uh, yielded, uh, uh, you know, mistakes. Mistakes in American foreign policy have been done by underestimating the importance of uh, nationalism in other countries. Uh, what in, for the United States is the promotion of democracy for uh, some other countries is the invasion by a superpower. Uh, a lot of what, ha- what was happening in Afghanistan, in Iraq, uh, and somewhere, so, and, and you know, even Vietnam, uh, nationalism uh, of the United States played a very important role. Uh, but that's very hard to recognize, and we, we see in, this, in, in Washington continues. Uh, uh, policies that ignore that other countries are highly nationalistic. Uh, so a country that, uh, like the United States, which is nationalist, and there you know it's, it, there are very positive, good things about that, but um, cannot see, cannot recognize, cannot appraise, and and, and and act accordingly that other countries are also uh, nationalists uh, and. Uh, Taking that into account would
1: perhaps uh, uh, avoid problems. Yeah. Uh, So, Dr. Moises Naim, you've served in government in Venezuela in the early 90s. You've studied government and foreign policy uh, throughout your career, as well as economics and related topics. What countries in the world today most concern you uh, with regard to these forces of populism, polarization, and post-truth narratives, and, and why?
2: First and foremost, the United States. Uh, I think uh, democracy is uh, an endangered species, is you know, at the, the, the high, there's a high risk of disappearance. Only 21 nations today can be classified as, as full democracies, 21 out of 190 something. Uh, and uh, so the United States is important, the United States, because what's happening, what will happen to democracy in the United States and how it is practiced, how it is uh, uh, operated, how it works matters to other countries and defines how other countries use democracy. The United States is better off and Americans are better off when in other countries democracy reigns because when there is no democracy, the probabilities of conflicts are higher, both domestic, internal conflict and uh, international conflict. So it is a national interest of the United States to ensure that most countries, as many as possible, uh, are functioning democracies and not stealthy uh, autocrats. Um, that doesn't mean that uh, you don't have to sit down and do business with the likes of Saudi Arabia, for example, or uh, or others, even China, uh, that are clearly non-democracy, not, not democracies. But, uh, but that's the story. It is very important to strengthen democracy in the United States in order to be able to be more effective uh, creating conditions there uh, in other places. Again, I'm not suggesting that the United States starts uh, exporting democracy. Democracies have to come from the country, from the each individual in, in a specific country cannot uh, you, know, you know, it's not an exportable good democracy, but there are things that the United States can do to help facilitate uh, uh, democracy, the ascent and and the, and the strength of democracies elsewhere.
1: Are, are there maybe one or two other countries around the world that have been subjected to the rise of these 3P autocrats that are of particular concern to you?
2: Well, uh, we have, as we speak, in the country of Peru, there is a, a, a quite a mess in terms of uh, the, uh, the president that was uh, clearly uh, in, 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 unable to fulfill the, his office, uh, and um, and people are in the streets. The country is divided, uh, and so that there is a lot going on there. Uh, that's one. Um, in in in. Not, Of course, one wants to see what happens in Ukraine uh, as as the fighting abates. Uh, You know, what form will government take? Will will democracy thrive in in, in Ukraine as a result of this war or not? And so those are two examples. Very different, Peru and Ukraine, but amazingly similar in terms of of the kinds of uh, three P's that are present there.
1: And Dr. Naeem, we only have about four minutes left, but I always like to try and give my guest the last word. Uh, What else should our listeners know about this topic? Uh, What didn't I ask you today that I should have asked you?
2: It's important uh, to strengthen democracy in the United States, and that will not happen without the active participation or more active participation of the people. Uh, I, uh, I I I already said it, but it's worth re- reminding and re- restressing stressing again. Democracy is not voting every four years only. You need to be better informed. You have to have a curiosity and interest uh, about what's happening and understand that what's happening in politics will affect you and your family in very direct ways, and you cannot delegate or ignore that. So the appeal to be better informed. And as I said, I am very aware that people are busy raising children and, and making a living and nobody has time for this. But find the time to just understand a little bit uh, more of what, what, what's, what's going on and the kinds of things we are talking. And then the book, as you know, uh, The Revenge of Power, talks about uh, the politically homeless class. Uh, There are hundreds of millions of Americans uh, and others around the world uh, that don't have an ideology that uh, they can embrace. In the United States, uh, the number of independents is is raising uh, at great speed. People that are homeless, they don't have a political home uh, that represents their interests, their ideas, their their values, their, their realities and uh, we need to understand that and and i hope that new uh political homes will provide shelter and guidance and and and, and union to the politically homeless millions that are now in the united states
1: uh one final question dr naim before we close out the show today actually two (laughs) Uh, where can our listeners find your latest book the revenge of power
2: In uh, bookstores, wherever books are sold uh, online and digitally, or uh, in paper, uh, in in bookstores, uh, is uh, I think is everywhere. Uh, And the digital there's a digital version, there's an audio version, there is, uh, uh, and it's in different country. In in, in, the book is out in fourteen fourteen different uh, languages.
1: That's impressive. And, and you have published many scholarly articles on a wide range of topics. Uh, do you have a website where people can access more of your work?
2: Indeed. MoisesNaim.com. One word, together.com.
1: Dr. Moises Naim, this has been a wonderful discussion. Uh, thank you for sharing your knowledge with us today. Uh, have a wonderful upcoming holiday season.
2: Thank you. Thank you, John. It was a wonderful conversation. I'm very grateful for the invitation. All the best.
1: Folks, that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today. I look forward to having time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Our guest will be Colonel Matt Sousa, and we'll discuss economics, politics, and security across Southern Africa. Uh, thank you for listening to National Security This Week. Have a great finished week, everyone. Take care.
0: You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns with host John Olson. It's brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check their website, CybersecuritySummit.org, for a listing of their upcoming webinar series.